From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. Deatra Jackson, a leader in the national movement for black lives, embraces socialism as the only cure for the ills of systemic inequality and racist policing. The U.S. serves as an imperialist machine that has rededicated itself over and over again to the widespread destruction of black people and workers and suppression of socialist ideas. We are in the ring with racial capitalism and it will not go down without a fight. And Gerald Horn weighs in on the plans of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi to poke the dragon and travel to Taiwan. If you add all of these factors together, you begin to understand why the United States is now enmeshed in what could easily be called a classic imperial overstretch. Plus protests in D.C. for abortion rights and for political prisoner Motulu Shakur. All that and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. Well, during Thursday's eighth hearing on the attack on the U.S. Capitol, the January 6th committee presented detailed testimony about how, for three crucial hours, former President Trump contacted no law enforcement or defense officials in an effort to deter his supporters from their violent rampage. Trump also ignored repeated pleas from his family and staff, imploring him to send a strong message for the rioters to go home. Evidence revealed in the hearing so far paint a picture of Trump as summoning a mob to Washington, D.C., and pointing these rioters, some of whom Trump knew were heavily armed, toward the Capitol in a planned effort to interfere with the counting of electoral ballots from the 2020 presidential election. Because of the highly partisan environment in Washington and in the nation, there are some pundits who are dismissing the detailed and often shocking testimony in the hearings as, quote unquote, the third impeachment of Trump or as theater by Democrats to aid their prospects in the upcoming midterm and 2024 elections. But despite these dismissals, new information made public by the committee has revealed chilling details about what the committee says was an attempted coup. In her closing remarks Thursday, Cheney rebutted the accusations of a partisan witch hunt. And for those of you who seem to think the evidence would be different if Republican leader McCarthy had not withdrawn his nominees from this committee, let me ask you this. Do you really think Bill Barr is such a delicate flower that he would wilt under cross-examination? Pat Cipollone, Eric Hirschman, Jeff Rosen, Richard Donahue, of course they aren't. None of our witnesses are. The committee plans to resume hearings in September. Other actions by the Biden administration and Democrats are raising more controversy than support from voters who gave Dems the White House and a majority in the House and Senate. After Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia buried Biden's efforts to address the climate catastrophe, Biden did not do what many environmental activists wanted him to do this week, and that is to declare a climate emergency and take steps such as banning drilling for fossil fuels on public lands. Instead, Biden proposed boosting wind energy projects and providing more air conditioning for low-income residents. He spoke at a former coal-fired plant in Massachusetts that will now produce cables to connect to offshore wind farms. Not a single 
Republican in Congress stepped up to support my climate plan. Not one. So let me be clear. Climate change is an emergency. And in the coming weeks, I'm going to use the power I have as president to turn these words into formal, official government actions through the appropriate proclamations, executive orders, and regulatory power that the president possesses. Gene Sue, Energy Justice Program Director at the Center for Biological Diversity, responded to Biden's speech by saying, quote, the world's burning up from California to Croatia, and right now Biden's fighting fire with a trickle from a garden hose. Saying we're in a climate emergency and declaring one under the law are totally different things, end quote. Because of the Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade, which made abortion a national right, and the Senate gridlock also killing any chance for legislation guaranteeing reproductive choice, Biden is also being urged by reproductive rights activists to declare a national health emergency and allow access to abortion on federal land in those states that have banned the procedure. But so far, Biden has not made this emergency executive action either. Pressuring the president, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar, and Cori Bush were among the members of Congress arrested Tuesday after a sit-down protest on Capitol Hill against the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Representatives Jackie Speer of California and Andy Levin of Michigan spoke to Al Jazeera. We're not going to go back. This is the greatest takeaway of rights for women in this country in our history. fundamental rights away that are basic human rights. I mean, the U.S. is going backwards in, like, overdrive when other countries are advancing in women's right to autonomy over their own bodies and their own decisions. And as Biden just returned from the Middle East with new pledges of fealty to the apartheid state of Israel, the Democratic Party continues to allow money from the Israel lobby, APAC, the American Israel Public Affairs Committee, to be spent to defeat black and brown lawmakers who stand up for the rights of Palestinian people. In the July 19th primary in Maryland, former Congresswoman Donna Edwards was defeated in her bid to take back her seat in Congress from opponent Glenn Ivey, funded by APAC, which spent at least $6 million to defeat Edwards. Edwards was outspent seven to one in the race. Other lawmakers targeted by APAC include Nina Turner, who lost her race in Ohio, and Jessica Cisneros, who narrowly lost in Texas. But there are no cries from Democrats about foreign interference in these elections. And last note in this thread, the Biden administration continues to hear from grassroots black community activists about issues of policing and justice. This week, there was a rally at the Department of Justice seeking compassionate release for Dr. Mutulu Shakur, who was active in the black freedom movement in the 1960s and 70s and was targeted by the FBI's COINTELPRO system of spying on and infiltration of organizations and assassinations of movement leaders. Lydia Curtis was on hand. 
faith-based leaders and activists gathered on Wednesday, July 20th in front of the Department of Justice building to demand the immediate release of activist and political prisoner Dr. Matulu Shakur. In 1988, Dr. Shakur was convicted of racketeering conspiracy, armed bank robbery, and bank robbery killings, and sentenced to 60 years in prison. At no time did the evidence show that Dr. Shakur killed anyone. He has been in the federal penitentiary in Lexington, Kentucky for 36 years, and because of his deteriorating health at age 71, a campaign for his release has been gaining momentum. Activists Nkichi Taifa and Reverend Graylin Hagler read an excerpt from a letter that was to be delivered to Attorney General Merrick Garland and his deputy, Lisa Monaco. The continued incarceration of this terminally ill senior citizen serves no useful purpose as Mr. Shakur represents absolutely no threat to public safety. For more than three decades, he has had no serious infractions in prison. This exemplary accomplishment, coupled with his age and dozens of programs, classes, and certificates he has been awarded, all provide ample reason for you to feel confident that releasing him is the right and humane thing to do. The group, which included Taliba Abuya of the Malcolm X Grassroots Movement, a pan-African organization that plays an active role in political prisoner movements, did not gain entry to the Justice Department, but has vowed to get the letter, which has over 200 signatures, to Mr. Garland. Furthermore, Abuya lays out compelling reasons why Dr. Shakur should be released. Baba is currently experiencing stage three cancer. Baba has survived COVID three times. Currently, Baba is confined to a wheelchair. What more compelling reasons will we need to be compassionate to one another? A member of the DC healing community, Kokai Patterson, who was trained by Dr. Shakur, has this to say. We have thousands and thousands of acupuncture detox specialists on every continent as a result of the training that came through the National Acupuncture Detoxification Association. Matulu Shakur left there in 79 and started the Black Acupuncturist Advisory Association of North America, which has been re reinstated after two years of long, arduous work. Dr. Matulu Shakur has been denied parole nine times. If you would like to fight this injustice, contact matulushakur.com. That's M-U-T-U-L-U-S-H-A-K-U-R.com. For On the Ground, this is Lydia Curtis. And finally, in culture and media, Tina Landis, activist and author of Climate Solutions Beyond Capitalism, is bringing her book and speaking tour to D.C. on Friday, July 22nd, 6 p.m. at the Justice Center, 617 Florida Avenue in Northwest D.C. Landis argues in her book that despite unprecedented extreme weather, droughts, floods and fires increasing each year, we see little to no action from capitalist leaders that match the urgency of the crisis. She says we collectively have the tools to reverse the crisis in one generation if we act now. But capitalism, the very system that created the crisis, stands in the way of the transformations needed. 
And finally, the family of Emmett Till, a 14-year-old boy who was murdered in Mississippi by racists in 1955, is close to the 300,000 signatures they are requesting on a petition to have the only surviving accomplice in the murder charged. Herb Boyd, editor of the Amsterdam News, broke the story recently that family members, volunteers, and filmmaker Keith Bouchamp located the original warrant for arrests in the murder, and that warrant also includes the name of Mrs. Roy Bryant, wife of one of the two murder suspects ultimately arrested and acquitted by an all-white jury one year after the murders. Because Mrs. Roy Bryant, also known as Carolyn Bryant Donham, was never arrested with her husband and another man, J.W. Milam. And because there is newer information linking her to the crime, Till's family would like this original arrest warrant executed. And for Bryant Donham, who is now in her 80s and reported to be living in North Carolina, to be charged, especially since she said in later interviews that she lied about Emmett Till making a sexual advance toward her, which allegedly led to his kidnapping and murder. Deborah Watts, Till's cousin and founder of the Emmett Till Legacy Foundation, attorney Jeribu Hill, and filmmaker Keith Beauchamp joined Pacifica programmer Joni Eisenberg on WPFW in Washington, D.C. on July 18th. Attorney Hill said it is not too late for justice in the Emmett Till murder. People say to me in the law, well, how can you go forward? If those two got off, surely she's going to get off. I said, no, she's the central figure here. But for her, the murder would never have occurred. But for Carolyn Bryant, whatever she told her racist husband and her racist brother-in-law, it would never have happened. So she's a key figure. We got to keep the light on her. People try to shine the light away from her. And they've been protecting her all the way up to the very top of the chain in terms of government agencies to the state level. Protection has been shrouded over this woman for 67 years. The petition is demanding that the Department of Justice not close the case that Mississippi officials execute the outstanding physical warrant that Carolyn Bryant Donham, as a recognized accomplice, be charged with kidnapping and murder immediately. And they're demanding an official policy to the Till family from the federal government, Department of Justice, the state of Mississippi and local law enforcement for the human rights violation, wrongful death, kidnapping and lynching of Emmett Lewis Till. And for the miscarriage and obstruction of justice in the 1955 trial, the petition is at sign.moveon.org forward slash petitions. And those are headlines and happenings. Stay with us. Ain't gonna let nobody turn us around, turn us around. Turn us around, ain't gonna let nobody turn us around. We're gonna keep on a working, keep on a fighting, justice for Emmett Till. Ain't gonna let no sheriff turn us around, oh no, turn us around. Oh no, turn us around. Ain't gonna let no DA turn us around. We're gonna keep on a working, keep on a fighting, fighting for Emmett Till. Ain't gonna let nobody turn us around, turn us around. 
This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Well, we know President Biden just ended a trip to the Middle East that many observers considered to be a disaster in terms of the overall status of the United States in the Middle East. This week, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi announced that she would be traveling to Taiwan. And this follows up a recent visit she made to Ukraine, another hotspot on the globe where the U.S. is involved. With me to discuss these and other international issues is our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn, the Morris Professor of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston. Welcome back to the show, Gerald. Thank you. Well, I really wanted to mainly to get your reaction to this announcement by Pelosi that she would be visiting Taiwan and give our listeners some idea about why this isn't just a visit. It's not just a visit by Speaker Pelosi's own admission. Recall that in April she intended to make this trip, but apparently got infected and had to delay it until August 2022. It takes place in the context of rising tensions between China and the United States of America. On a regular basis, U.S. naval vessels are challenging their Chinese counterparts in the South China Sea. Things have gotten so bad of late that former U.S. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger has warned that the situation could easily spin out of control. This would be the most significant high-ranking visit to this rebel province known as Taiwan that China claims it's its own in a quarter of a century. Keep in mind as well that it takes place in the context of the fact that Speaker Pelosi's congressional district in San Francisco has a substantial number of anti-communist Chinese and anti-communist Asian Americans generally. I think that It also is troubling that the Congressional Black Caucus, which has been their habit of late, is missing in action in the context of these rising tensions, which obviously take place in the larger context of Congress giving thumbs up on a Pentagon budget that's creeping ever closer to $1 trillion annually. Keep in mind as well that the United States is roping in to this conflict, many of its allies, so-called. Speaking of South Korea, which has a major trading relationship with China, Japan, ditto, Australia, ditto, New Zealand, ditto. So this is one of many hotspots that the United States is involved in right now. And in some ways, it's a companion to these other hotspots that I know you want to discuss. Uh, Speaking of Mr. Biden's trip to Israel and Saudi Arabia, which is obviously uh, targeting Iran, and not to mention the hotspot that is Ukraine. Right. So what most people will ask is, why would the United States open up this new 
frontier of controversy or just open it up even wider, I should say, when we are already bogged down in Ukraine, tens of billions of dollars sent there that by many accounts is being squandered. Some, some, say it's, some say these advanced weapons are being sold. They're being captured by Russia. They're being destroyed as soon as they cross the border. Don't have the troops to use the weapons. We are propping up Israel, which is continuing to commit you know, gross human rights violations against the Palestinian people and outright murder, assassinate you know, more Iranians that are scientists and people who can help them with their, their building their society. Is Biden just totally captured by the neocons he's put in his administration? You know, what, what's happening? What do you think is happening? Well, I think it's a product of many factors. Number one, the base of the Democratic Party, which consists of the Black American constituency and is noted the Congressional Black Caucus has been missing in action on foreign policy, which gives the neocons and the hawks more latitude. And we also know that the other pillar of the Democratic Party, speaking of the labor movement, more specifically the AFL-CIO, for decades now has been captured in terms of foreign policy uh, by neocons that goes back to the bad old days of George Meany and Lane Kirkland. And then there's the other factor, which is that you recall that under President Obama, there was the fabled pivot to Asia. The United States wanted to shift attention to the People's Republic of China, but alas, they had not necessarily resolved the question of NATO and Ukraine and Russia. And now the United States finds itself bogged down there. And then, as you know more than most, the Israeli lobby plays an outsized role in terms of the shaping of U.S. foreign policy. And they are demanding right now a confrontation with Iran. And that is a signal that the Biden administration finds difficult to ignore. So if you add all of these factors together, you begin to understand why the United States is now enmeshed in what could easily be called a classic imperial overstretch. Recall that some decades ago, the Yale historian uh, Paul Kennedy, in the rise and fall of the great powers, wrote about how empires, because they are inevitably involved in many countries, find out that they have many challengers as well, which leads to them being overstretched. And with the rise of China, which, as you know, the United States helped to boost into significance some decades ago when Henry Kissinger traveled there more than a half century ago under President Nixon. Now, China's challenging the United States, and the United States really doesn't have an answer except to try to ratchet up tensions by sending Speaker Pelosi across the Pacific. I definitely wanted to talk to you about this in relationship to the speech that former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo gave at the Hudson Institute here in D.C., and this was back in June. And he talked about Taiwan, Ukraine, and Israel as being the so-called lighthouses of liberty, I think. And you know and I know that Israel is an apartheid state, that it is, as I just said, committing gross human rights violations against the Palestinian people. Uh, we know that they are routinely assassinating Iranian citizens, 
They are in the process of intervening in the waters of Lebanon. There's a new dispute with Israel, I think, attempting to or actually drilling for oil or natural gas in waters that belong to Lebanon. Just basically a, a rogue state supported by the U.S. And so whenever someone like Mike Pompeo was speaking, it's obvious that it's full of just untruths, half-truths, and I don't really know how else to describe it, but what was your reaction to his speech and looking at these three areas and lift him lifting them up as ideals of liberty? <laughs> well, if you were to see Michael Pompeo today, you, it would be difficult for you to recognize him. He's lost about 50 pounds or so. He does not resemble his old corpulent self. And I think that he's also planning to run for U.S. president. And there's going to be enormous competition from the GOP side, speaking of Josh Hawley, Nikki Haley, Tom Cotton, Ron DeSantos, Marco Rubio, Rick Scott, Ted Cruz, and not to mention Agent Orange himself, Donald J. Trump. So Michael Pompeo has to find a way to distinguish himself amongst the crowd. And I guess what he's going to play upon is the fact that he served as Secretary of State under Mr. Trump. And that gives him some credentials to appeal to the hawk and neocon constituency that is sizable in the Republican Party. And that speech has to be viewed within that troubling context. Okay. Well, as we look forward in the coming weeks, and there's just so many issues happening here nationally and globally in terms of the climate crisis, the continuing war in Ukraine, uh, these latest adventures by the U.S. in Taiwan. Is there anything that you want to draw our attention to? Well, only that these crises continue to mount. Uh, I think that the most disturbing issue on the domestic scene or is the troubling testimony emerging from the January 6th committee and the evidence concerning not only a direct collaboration between Mr. Trump and neo-Nazis and fascist elements, but also the appearance of misdeeds committed by the Secret Service. That is to say, we know about their texts from January 5th and 6th supposedly missing. We also know that Mr. Trump recruited to his staff in the White House a former Secret Service agent, Anthony Arnato, and we also know that perhaps the most outrageous aspect of January 6th, setting aside the storming of the Capitol, was the apparent attempt to kidnap the U.S. Vice President Michael Pence, uh, supposedly with the complicity of Secret Service agents. So this does not bode well, I'm afraid to say, for domestic tranquility and has the obvious stench of pre-fascism. Okay, and that's what you certainly warned us about in our previous one of our previous conversations. So we'll definitely uh, stay on top of all these developments here on On the Ground. I've been speaking to our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you.
Gayatra is an organizer, trainer, big sister, godmother of five, and national director of BYP 100. Raised in Southwest Philadelphia, now living in Chicago while attending grad school in Miami, she became active in the height of the murder of Trayvon Martin and the Zimmerman verdict with the organization called Dream Defenders. Since then, since then, Dee Dee has had her hands in efforts and actions such as bringing participatory budgeting to Durham, hashtag Durham Beyond Policing, the Justice for Reefa campaign, Black Mamas, Black August bailouts, and some that shouldn't be named. Now as the national director of BYP 100, she dreams of freedom, future worlds, and building a movement of ungovernable and strategic lovers of black liberation. Let's give her a big hand. Thank you. Good afternoon, everybody. How are y'all? How are you feeling? So every single day in this country, lives are lost in the war against white supremacy, racialized capitalism, transphobia, homophobia, just last month in Buffalo, New York, the lives of black people were lost senselessly. These were the lives of people who were trying to live, feed their families, and take care of themselves. They were murdered while shopping at a local grocery store in a working class black neighborhood. These murders are senseless and they are intentional. And I felt it necessary to be the first thing that I spoke about. Their lives were taken on purpose, these murders were aligned with the mission, vision, and values espoused by white supremacists in this country. We, black people in this country, cannot go to the grocery store. We can't go to church, or school, or a movie theater, or a mosque, without risking our lives. This is what we are up against every day. We can't get on the internet, much less social media, without reminders of the violence that happens against us. I wrote that piece before the mass shooting that took place in the elementary school in Texas. It's so deep in the, in the roots of, of this country that we cannot grieve fast enough without having to grieve again. White supremacist roots and legacies run deep in this country, as you all know. Uh, they have been fertilized by imperialism and have flourished into the branches of US government, military, and militarized police. White supremacy, the most invasive species, has developed into racialized capitalism and displacement. And all that remains are the poison fruits and toxic land and water of white supremacy. We are left with an increased wealth gap between the richest and the poorest among us and the man-made environmental damage that is irreversible. Beloveds, it is irreversible because we are constantly having to battle with the fruits and not the roots. It is the root we must go to ward with. The roots of capitalism, anti-blackness, sexism, queer and trans oppression in all forms of domination is in the roots of this country and we must thrive underneath the soil. That is where we must starve the roots. 
we have an opportunity now to, to plant seeds of a new future. A future that bears the fruits of love, justice, solidarity, consciousness, and care. We must prepare our fields for new seasons through study and struggle, even when our present is not promised. From the war on drugs to the war in Iraq, from the historic 1994 crime bill, who we all know is the lead author of that, our current president, and the 1994 crime bill, the history of it, serves for my generation. It increased policing and police practices that have made this country the biggest jailer in the world. From the global pandemic to the unjust blockades imposed by the U.S. against Cuba and Venezuela. Meanwhile, in the U.S., our public schools, there are 1.2 million students unaccounted for across this country because of the pandemic. Because this country does not give a f about education. Because what we know is that we actually don't have an education system. We have a capitalist system that determines who gets access to education and who does not. We have, we don't have a healthcare system. We have a capitalist system that determines who gets access to health and who does not. We do not have a justice system. We have a capitalist system that determines who gets access, who gets punished and who does not. We don't have a, okay, y'all get where I'm going with this, right? Okay. And this, the U.S. serves as an imperialist machine that has rededicated itself over and over again to the widespread destruction of black people and workers and suppression of socialist ideas. We are in the ring with racial capitalism and it will not go down without a fight. In 2020, one of the largest uprisings that this country has ever seen, 20 million people out in the street calling for defunding the police. Led by my generation. Shout out to the millennials. Shout out to Gen Z, okay? And even with that many people out in the street calling for defunding the police, calling for divestment from the police, which means a reinvestment into our communities, into what we really need, federal spending on police has actually increased. That is what we are up against. And the time for our voices to be heard is now. The time for collective action is now. I was raised by a single mother in the hood of Southwest Philly. My mother did everything she could to take care of me and my sisters and really ensure that we had as much as we could. And what she could not control, as I spoke to before, is my education. We had to attend underfunded schools and due to that experience, I grew up in the 1994 crime bill. I went to school with the 1994 crime bill. It was a keen understanding for me around how policing and prisons are incorporated into kids' lives every day. My classmates and I were subjected to daily surveillance, checking IDs, metal detectors, wands, police officers in the schools, chains on the windows, bars on the doors, you name it, that was my school. I went to a zero tolerance school, which means that I got disciplined a lot for doing actually what I'm doing right now, which is running my mouth and speaking the truth. 
today I have the privilege of serving as the National Director of BYP 100. And as my comrade spoke earlier, Kyla, BYP 100 is a membership organization of black 18 to 35-year-old organizers, storytellers, educators, artists, healers, activists that are dedicated to black liberation and freedom. And I'm letting you know that we constantly have to reiterate and bring the words of our ancestor, Fannie Lou Hamer, that we are sick and tired of being sick and tired. For the last nine years, BYP 100 has been organizing, centering our work through a black queer feminist lens. Now this is the framework that we've decided to adopt because it's pivotal to uplifting who and what we are fighting for. Because we know if we uplift the voices of those that are most marginalized in our communities, that are most marginalized by the different crises that we have to face, everyone will benefit. We have a fuller story because of that. And while we hold black queer feminism as core to our purpose and our vision, it is not enough. We commit today to moving our work from here on out through an explicitly socialist lens. And we commit today to continue to study and struggle in service of the liberation of all people. Most recently, I had the opportunity, BYP 100 had the opportunity to be a part of a historic delegation of 100 youth activists from across North America to go to Cuba. And if there is one message that I take from that experience, it is that the revolution is inevitable. While the roots of racialized capitalism are strong and well-resourced, the revolution is inevitable. Every single one of you is an embodiment of the revolution because you are here. And the revolution is inevitable, whether it is in our lifetime, in our generation, it is inevitable. And why, you ask? The revolution is inevitable because the outstanding and selfless work of doctors and scientists in Cuba the revolution is inevitable because of the courage of Shireen Abu Akleh. The revolution is inevitable because of the rising up of farmers in protests across India. The revolution is inevitable because of the fight for reparations happening across the Caribbean and across the African diaspora. The revolution is inevitable because every single day workers are fighting for their rights across this world. The revolution is inevitable because Flint, Michigan still does not have clean water. The revolution is inevitable because Palestine will be free. The revolution is inevitable because my generation and the generation after me is divesting from capitalism and refuses to recognize capitalism as a legitimate economic system to support working people. The revolution is inevitable because we will eliminate student debt for all across this country. The revolution is inevitable because of the police divestment work happening right here in Los Angeles and across this country that is led by black women and black femme folks and black poor people and black working class people. We are the revolution. And because we are, the revolution is inevitable now. Just take a deep breath and say to yourself, the revolution is inevitable. The revolution is inevitable.
Now find a neighbor and say, neighbor, the revolution is inevitable. Revolution is Because now is our time. Now is our time to cheer and chant and sing and march and care for each other, but most importantly, to organize. Because the revolution starts today. What possible better way could there be than to introduce the president of Cuba with that last speech? Because Cuba is indeed the embodiment, the embodiment of the same process. And you know, it's so important to affirm the inevitability of revolution and also to recognize that it takes us to realize that inevitability because of course it's movements for social change and the heroism and we can see this with those who came before us that why and how change happens is because of the people. And so this message of affirmation of revolution, Cuba has stood the test of time against all odds, an island nation. They said they could do it. They said they would withstand the empire. And we are here today to say to Joe Biden and to the summit of exclusion, Cuba, you are welcome here. Let's hear from the president of Cuba. Dear Manolo, comrades participating in the People's Summit, I was not wrong when I said that I would not be at the Summit of the Americas, but that the voice of Cuba certainly would be. You are our voice. The revolution has always had it very clear. Where governments deprive us of our voice, peoples will be there to represent us, to speak on our behalf. This has been the case since the times of the Ministry of the Colonies, when there were governments that were pushed by the empire to break relations with Cuba, and ended up by obeying the order of the master, with the honorable exception of Mexico. The Cuban Institute of Friendship with the Peoples was born from that understanding. Solidarity is not only a principle that is inseparable from the revolutionary praxis, it is the most formidable weapon for those of us who believe in the power of the masses, in the telluric force of the mobilized peoples, and in the inspiring struggle for social justice. Wherever there are peoples in struggle, Cuba will be there. And wherever Cuba is, there will be people in struggle. The struggle we share today dates back centuries at the cost of the blood of the best sons and daughters of our great homeland. That struggle is waged against the powerful neighbor's attempt to recolonize our American nations. It is waged against the spirit of the Monroe Doctrine that continues to guide the United States and its political approach to our region. It is waged against imperialist policies of sanctions and punishments for countries that will not yield to such designs. It is waged against the aspirations of U.S. politicians to be police and supreme judges, determined to establish who should be our rulers and even our civil society. Cuba was the first Latin American nation excluded from hemispheric alliances for having rebelled against the empire. Others tried the same before and were subjected to coup d'etats, dictatorships, and transnational campaigns of terror like Operation Condor. Cuba was expelled from the OAS. It was separated from its natural place. They financed invasions and continue to finance different attacks against the revolution. We are the honorable survivors of 63 years of blockade and to the disgrace of that powerful empire, which is 30 times bigger than our island, we are among the countries of the hemisphere that have the highest levels of education, health, as well as our own scientific development. 
Today, Venezuela is also being arrogantly punished. It has been robbed of its savings and its foreign assets, and its legitimate government has not been recognized. Vicious attacks have been launched at Nicaragua's neck, a nation that has faced so many attempts at conquest in history, and where at some point in time they were subjected to a dictatorship that was strongly sponsored by Washington. People are wise. People have memory. Those people who have organized a summit that they wanted to prevent, as well as the proud governments that did not silence their denunciations and raise their voices also on our behalf, understands that where there used to be a punished nation before, now there are three. And tomorrow, there will be 10. However, if the people close ranks, the mythical giant that devours worlds shall not pass. Thanks to that understanding, the Ninth Summit of the Americas was not exactly what its organizers expected. Solidarity was ever more present also where it had not been invited to, where it was not wanted. Therefore, I would ask you to share the most sincere appreciation with the governments of the region that firmly oppose the exclusions of Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua from the Summit of the Americas. Deserve Serving our special recognition are President Andres Manuel López Obrador of Mexico, the Prime Minister of St. Vincent and the Grenadines, Raúl González, the Presidents of Bolivia, Lucho Arce, and Honduras, Xiomara Castro, as well as the many leaders and heads of Caribbean and Latin American delegations who, during the summit itself, have rejected the exclusion of Cuba and the criminal blockade against our people. North America is not the enemy. The North America of workers, indigenous peoples and immigrants who have also been excluded, not once, but day after day by the merciless empire of the market. That North America that you are showing us, a rebellious, insubordinate, proactive and fraternal North America, is our natural sister is not and will never be an enemy. Thank you, sisters and brothers, for showing what the powerful have wanted to censor and hide for so long. Thank you for giving a voice to the excluded. Thank you for painting the horizon with hope. Thank you for ratifying to us, once again, that a better world is possible. From the bottom of my heart, Manolo, comrades, thank you very much. Now you can see why the Biden administration and the capitalist ruling class in the United States absolutely had to exclude the president of Cuba because what would the American people ever think if they heard a message like that? Perhaps that Cuba should be our neighbor and not our enemy. Perhaps that Cuba is a source of inspiration. The United States has many political prisoners and it tortures our political prisoners. The leaders of the Black Panther Party and the Black Liberation Movement, the Puerto Rican Liberation Movement, and the indigenous people who have been resisting and resisting and resisting ever since 1492. <laughs> Leonard Peltier must be freed. He's been in prison for 47 years. Our next speaker, is Jean Roach from the Minicojo Lakota. Jean is an artist, she's an activist, she is the co-director of the International Leonard Peltier Defense Committee. Jean is a survivor of the 1975 shootout in Oglala, South Dakota, and has been advocating for justice and freedom for Leonard Peltier for the past 47 years. Please welcome Jean Roach. Wopila Tonka. That means thank you in our language. 
I'd like to make a land acknowledgement as part of our um, protocol. Wherever we go to somebody else's land, we are here in the land of the Tangwa and the Chumash. And I'd like to thank the president of Cuba for his speech. I'm a survivor of this shootout, but we're all survivors here. Many of my grandparents and our relatives have been killed. My great-great-grandparents were survivors of where Custer was killed. And we live on that because our people have been attacked, mutilated, abused for generations, and we're still here somehow. I'm speaking a different language that's foreign to my people, but I'm still speaking. I'd like to um, talk about the survivor issue. One of the things that we do have is that people in our home, you know, I heard all the talk about, we don't have running water, we don't have clean water, we don't have the bathroom facilities in some you know, people's homes. And it's kind of like sad that we're never recognized or brought to uh, different venues like this. You know, we seem to be like forgotten at some points. But our people are strong and we, we strive for our Mother Earth. You know, we protect our water. And one of the things that Leonard did was stand up for the people and the, the land. What happened in Oglala was typical for the time period. The American Indian Movement had brought in spirituality back to our people after we were forced into boarding schools and we had no choice but to speak English. My grandparents were beaten because they spoke one word of our own language. And today we are finding out the boarding schools. How many children are buried in those lands around these churches, like thousands. And you know, when I talk about this, it makes me feel really deep inside, because Leonard, he represents everything that they're doing against us. 47 years inside the prison. And it's really ironic that his co-defendants were acquitted on a basis of self-defense. Dino Butler and Bob Rabadou, they were acquitted. The FBI attacked our people. Have they, they've been doing for generations. They changed from the cavalry to the FBI. We have treaties and they've been violated. Every one of the tribes in this nation or in, on Turtle Island had made agreements and none of them have been recognized or honored. As sovereign nations, we're never invited. <laughs> Do you see any of them invited to the thing that Biden's doing? None of them. Okay, so we're just excluded. And we want to change that. We want to make friends and solidarity with all the nations. And we do have people that have supported Leonard over the years. If everybody in this room would take the time and call the White House, call Biden, talk to your representatives. We've been doing a really strong campaign for over years, but it got stronger after he got COVID. Out of all the prisoners in Coleman, Florida, where he is, they all got vaccinated with boosters, and he's the only one that didn't get it. 
He suffers from diabetes, uh, aortic aneurysm. And you know, after laying on a thin mat for 47 years, I'm sure his back, he has several aches and pains. But people can make a change for this. Everybody that represents a nation could help us. Because if Leonard Pelcher isn't free, none of us are free. And indigenous activist Jean Roach, and before her, Cuban President Miguel Diaz Canal, and Deatra Jackson, national organizer for BYP 100, will have the last word on today's show. They were all speaking at the People Summit in June 2022 in Los Angeles. And speaking of Cuba, 100 people from around the United States arrived in Cuba on Monday, July 18th for the 30th year of the Caravan to Cuba, sponsored by Pastors for Peace. The caravan carried two tons of medical supplies and other material aid. And this act of collective compassion occurred as 55 Democrats joined Republicans to sink legislation proposed by Representative Rashida Tlaib to allow Cuba to import food from the United States. This is On the Ground, voices of resistance from the nation's capital on two dozen stations on the Pacifica Radio Network, on all your podcast platforms at On the Ground Show with Esther Ivarum, and on our website, onthegroundshow.org. In addition to communicating with us on our website, you can let us know you like the show on Twitter, Facebook, and on patreon.com at On the Ground Show. The music we played this hour included attorney and vocalist Jeribu Hill singing on the Pacifica program to Hill, D.C. and Did Not Blow Your Mind This Time by the Delphonics. Lead singer of the Delphonics, William Hart, died July 14th in Philadelphia at the age of 77. And our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Ivarum. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace. This is Esther Ivarum, producer and host of On the Ground, thanking you for listening and for being a part of our audience. And I'm asking you to please partner with us in keeping alive this independent grassroots news program from Washington, D.C. Your fully tax-deductible donation of as little as $3 a month will help us keep lifting up voices of activism and resistance to corporate power and corporate media. So please go to our page at patreon.com forward slash on the ground show. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash on the ground show where we post the shows and bonus material, or you can see all the ways to support, including end-of-the-year giving and PayPal on our website, which you know is onthegroundshow.org. Thank you.